Today's film includes a scene of implied sexual assault. That scene is discussed in this episode, so if that's a subject you'd rather not hear about, be forewarned. Young Private Norman Ellison joins a highly respected and battle-hardened tank crew during the invasion of Germany in the waning days of World War II. His first task? Scrubbing out the gory remains of the man he's there to replace. It sets the tone for the film to follow, depicting the brutality and desperation of one of the deadliest jobs of American soldiers in World War II. War Daddy, Bible, Coonass, and Gordo fill out the rest of the crew. Grieving their dead crewmate, they mercilessly haze Ellison while inflicting their rage upon the Germans. Despite their contempt for the rookie, they gradually grow to accept him as he partakes in the horror of war. Starring Brad Pitt, Shia LaBeouf, and Logan Lerman, the film's macho, fatalistic tone neatly matches its bleak visual palette. The tank combat scenes are realistic and adrenaline-charged, as the film used real Sherman and Tiger tanks in its production. It's Kill or Be Killed today on Friendly Fire as we review director David Ayer's biggest box office success, the 2014 film Fury. Welcome to Friendly Fire. It's a show where the hosts were trained to review films about office dramas, but here we are reviewing films about war. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> and I'm John Roderick. John, aren't you happy that we aren't on the hook for those intros anymore? Feels good. It does. <laughs> it's not our responsibility. I really think our friend Ben is doing a bang-up job. <laughs> Nobody has ever said bang-up job with less sincerity than that (laughs) (laughs) our intro is an ammo box filled with urine (laughs) guys i have a real pet peeve in movies which is guy spitting half a mouthful of campbell soup out as this guy just threw up and uh there's an early scene in the film we watched today fury there's a a, a shot in this where kind of our main character Norman runs out of the tank and has a little tiny mouthful of barf after he has been given the task of like wiping the mortal remains of his predecessor out of the tank. The best special effect of that kind I've ever seen, which is the man's face. Half of his face is retained like like a pancake. I'm just saying, like, can one actor take responsibility for doing a great barf take and actually ipecac themselves? <laughs> Instead of just having some cream of mushroom soup and a... Like, yeah. actors get all sorts of latitude for the choices that they make in their performance. Yeah. And I wonder how much latitude an actor has in terms of how they choose to barf. Because it sure seems like like a, a Shia LaBeouf man, a uh, a method man, would choose to ipecac themselves, right? Like, sure, would be hurling all afternoon. No, 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 take another take. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you guys: in your long lives, you guys are both in your twenties, right? You've been around for a while. Uh, have you ever seen something so gross that it inspired you to spontaneously? Vomit. No. No. Because I've seen gross things. Now, I've never seen somebody's face get blown off. 
which is a that's an order of magnitude greater than the grossest thing I've ever seen. But I have seen things on a on a parallel of grossness with what the films would have you believe is enough to cause somebody to have to run out and barf. And I have never even for a moment felt like OGs. Oh, like all those cop TV shows where the young cop sees yeah, the rookie. The ro- the rookie has to go barf behind the car. What the hell are they yeah. barfing for? Like, who are these people? Like, hold your water. There's so much barfing in movies, and it's always bad. Yeah, when was the last time any one of you barfed that didn't have food poisoning? My my nervousness presents itself uh, on the other end of the of the pipe. What does that mean? You have a a nervous boner? No. Uh... Oh, I see what you're saying. That's not something you can show a rookie cop doing, though. Yeah, I'm a nervous pooper. You don't you don't see too many rookie cops crouched behind the uh, the cruiser, letting one go. What happens to a guy that he has blown apart to that extent within the confines of a tank that all of the other guys in the tank are basically unscathed? I had that same thought. There does not appear to be any sort of breach of the hull. I can only guess that it was a scene where they were they had the hatches open. He was up in, you know, his head was out of the hatch. He took a bullet mm-hmm. and then everything sort of fell back into the tank. It's the only it's the only way that that could be that he could be blown all in that tank and and the rest of the guys were just like, "Uh." Yeah, there's a later combat scene where a guy takes like a shell, like a a tiger shell to the face and falls back in. So that must have been it. Yeah, I think that's fairly reasonable. Is a bucket and a rag really the most efficient way to clean the interior of a tank, too? Or is he being hazed? This is a a war zone. These are, you know, these are wartime conditions. You didn't have uh, you didn't have access to the full complement of of uh swifters hose attachments yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah this is a this is a form of hazing that uh that our main character one of our main characters norman has to deal with upon arrival to his assignment norman a 60 words per minute typist has been assigned to a tank in what he and everyone else believes to be a clerical error i i would have loved to beat at the end when they uh, when they pull him out of the tank, like Norman, there you are. We've been looking everywhere for you. You've been. Sp- <laughs> we need you to type some stuff up. <laughs> you need to type the letters home for everyone in this tank who died. <laughs> he turns to camera. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that was the reason why they gave David Ayer Suicide Squad after this movie as a reward. <laughs> But that, you know, th- this kid, this uh, like rookie typist getting thrown in with a combat hardened crew is only one of the 800 hoary movie tropes on prominent display in this movie. But it didn't keep me from enjoying it the first time or this time. No, yeah. It's kind of like they just cut up. Saving Private Ryan and poured the pieces into a tank and shook it up. 
<laughs> so it came out the other side. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's no image in it that wouldn't look like, you know, if, if you cut a scene from this movie into Saving Private Ryan, I don't think anybody would notice. All it needed was uh, Grandpa in a members-only jacket bookends, and <laughs> this would have been it. I can provide those for you at, at low, low cost. <laughs> How many members-only jackets do you have? You know, it's funny that you should ask. <clears throat> I hated members-only jackets when they were new. I felt like they uh, they represented a thing that I did n- I was not and I did not like. They were very popular mm. in my school. They indicated a certain kind of thing that I just instinctively knew I was opposed to. But then in the 90s, in the thrift store world, there was this influx of members-only jackets into the thrift stores in the mid-90s, and you could get them for a dollar. And I felt like these one day are going to be worth something, but I still hate them. (laughs) And then as we trended into the 2000s and they were harder and harder to find and they started to be $15, $20 at a thrift store and you found a good one, periodically I would pull one from the rack and I would go, has there been enough time? Do I feel differently about them? <laughs> and I every time was like, I still hate these fucking things. And I put them <laughs> back on the rack. Even now when a members only jacket is like, is like $95 at a vintage store. I still I still spit on the sidewalk when I see them. So no, I've never owned one. Is that spit realistic? Is that a uh, is that Hollywood spit? Yep, it's chicken it's ch- chicken noodle soup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, the Saving Private Ryan post Saving Private Ryan, which I'm now I I now see Saving Private Ryan as a post Schindler's List movie. But it, but it, it, on the continuum of that style of sort of revisionism, World War II revisionism, it really stood out to me here. Um, maybe, maybe more so than Saving Private Ryan, but but now I'm 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 looking back at it through this same lens, which is that the movie seems, in its attempt to portray the brutality of war in a super realistic way that shocks us and demystifies World War II, which has always been presented to us as this sort of Audie Murphy, like Kilroy was here, sanitized sort of American jocularity. Like these movies have stripped all that out and tried to show us how brutal these wars were and how like brutalized these men were. But I'm starting to feel, and particularly in this watching this film, that that is unrealistic and that people at that time, even as they were being confronted with this kind of awful business, this daily death dealing, the way they dealt with it was not in this modern way that we that we watch on the screen and feel is realistic, which is this sort of like all is worthless Listen, kid, if you don't go rape that girl, I'm going to. Um, but they actually were much more like golly gee shucks aw gee about it because that's how they were. That's how they dealt with things. The World War II generation, the greatest generation didn't come back from that war and not talk about it 
because they all had post-traumatic stress disorder. They didn't talk about it because that wasn't their way. I think that we talked about Saving Private Ryan being a really Vietnam in World War II kind of movie. Also, like the fuck the brass kind of ethos of, of the Vietnam War um, creeping into the into our imagination of other wars. And um, that's like all over, all over this movie, <laughs> you know, like the down to the scene where the lieutenant says, move them out. And everybody says, fuck you. And then Brad Pitt says, move them out. And they're like, all right. 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 Because <laughs> he said it. Yeah. The, Not because the lieutenant said it. The like frag the lieutenant thing. And I think that was all in it. But we're talking about the same kind of war where a poster of Betty Grable wearing a leotard <laughs> was the most popular like poster of all time. And we've seen other movies that were made closer to the time when the idea of like kissing your hand and patting Betty Grable on the butt was considered about as risque a thing as you could put on film. Ah, you don't want to cry over a dame that doesn't even know you're alive? Snap out of it. Like, I, I just, I don't, I don't feel that historical truth represented in these films in their attempt to be, in their attempt to show us a body being run over by a tank over and over. That's an interesting point. Like, who is the real World War II American soldier? We've seen so many different versions of him in the 10 films that we've seen. I know, I think what I'm hearing is like you're writing for the the Stalag 17 version of American Soldier in World War II, but because Fury is made in 2014, what we need is a hyper-masculine, super-tired, super-dirty warrior. Like there's no place for, there's no place for the classic American Soldier in a modern war film. Was there a single person in this movie that you thought was saving himself for his sweetheart back home. Yeah, that's a great point. No. <laughs> right? But you know that that was a huge part of how people dealt with with their experience of that war. Yeah. Yeah, the letters and... Yeah. And there's nobody in this movie that is... I mean, every single one of these guys would fucking not hold in a board. <laughs> Yeah, these guys are here to kill Nazis. They are not here to <laughs> to survive and get home to their baby. And they right. aren't really necessarily pro-USA as much as they are anti-German. And yet Brad Pitt has an alt-right haircut. Yeah, I mean, the fuckboy haircuts are are doled out <laughs> as, mu as much as MREs. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Brad Pitt is a movie star because he is fun to watch. But he was, what, 45 during the making of this film? <laughs> maybe maybe there's an exception that can prove the rule. But 99% of the staff sergeants in World War II were 24. Shia LaBeouf's 28 in this movie. 28, right? And, and in World War II, there were 28-year-old lieutenant colonels. I wondered why Brad Pitt wasn't given a commission at at some point in this movie because he's so staff sergeanty the whole time like somebody runs up to him and says sir and he says i'm not a sir and they say well who's in charge i am like right. shouldn't you just be a lieutenant at that point <laughs> right <laughs> like, well the what guy is holding this guy back he's gu- so old <laughs> the guy that was on his way to put pin lieutenant bars on him got his face blown off and run over by a tank so <laughs> yeah michael pena and john bernthal are 40 Brad Pitt is 45-ish. At least Michael Pena looks young. Yeah, yeah. But it presents an interesting dynamic. Like, it isn't just that Norman is a typist crammed into a tank with a bunch of, like, war-weary jerk-offs. Like, he is a child compared to them, literally. Yeah, and it's communicating to us his his ineffectuality, his, his noobness. Just because you you put him next to Brad Pitt and it's like putting a you know a, a hard boiled egg next to a wiffle ball. <laughs> That's a weird weird way of putting it. But. You're just staring around your living room, John, just like describing <laughs> things that you see. Yeah, <clears throat> that's exactly what was happening. Oh, there's a hard boiled egg. Oh, look at that, a wiffle ball. <laughs> but I, you know, you think about what this tank crew because this is a. You can't argue with the um, the kind of, you know, they combined the experiences of the, the real experiences of several different sort of tank crews to make this this sort of montage. Oh, I see our dead bodies. How do you know they're dead? Are you a doctor? The tank crew that saw the absolute most action in World War Two, they it was in they were in North Africa in '43. They went over. They were at Anzio, um, and then. Maybe they were part of the invasion of southern France, and then they got pulled out and went in at D-Day. So they, you could be a tank crew like this that had been together for a long time and had fought a lot of battles. And then from D-Day, there, was, there were some tanks and tank crews that made it all the way from D-Day all the way to Berlin and the capitulation of the Germans. So there were people, there were crews and individual tankers that had that amount of fighting experience, which is, which is pretty impressive given that I think if you were flying a B-17, you reached a certain number of missions and you were, you had fulfilled your contract. You know, there weren't pilots that had flown 180 missions. You know, they got to a certain number 
and I think they could keep flying, but but yeah, they give you a new a new punch card, and your tenth one is free, right? Yeah, right, right. There's a scene in the film where the tankers look up and they see the bombers, like they see they see a hundred bombers flying a sortie, and there's the there's the feeling expressed of like go get them boys, but. You never hear any sort of, God, I wish I was there instead of in this shit box. <laughs> is that because that was never a feeling? Like the thing you're describing, John, is really interesting is like an infantry person is an infantry person for life. And that is just how they identify and and what they would want to do more than anything. Did anyone in a tank ever want to be in a plane? Because every time I saw a plane in this film, I was like, Oh God, that's got to be so preferable to to being in a rolling toilet. <laughs> I don't know. You know, those bombers had bomber crews had really low survival rates for most of the war. Yeah, because by the time they got to Germany, the fighter planes weren't didn't have the fuel capacity to follow them, and so the fighters would follow them all the way to the German border and then turn back. And it was like, good luck, fellas. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about uh, Shia Labeef. Yeah, he plays the very religious character Bible. <laughs> it's a great name. I think he's great in this movie. I'm just going to say it. I think he is the best actor in the film. And he was amazing, I thought. His beauty is unfortunate in a film like this because it makes him like a little bit shinier than all of these dirty assholes are supposed to look <laughs> but i just want to get into his eyes like a warm jacuzzi they are just pools of emotion and it seems like he is really trying hard in this film in a way that other people are pretty content to be like stoic and angry i think he's he's playing the full spectrum of emotions in a way the others aren't I tried to look into whether david ayer had said anything about the kind of religious symbolism and messaging in the film and i couldn't find anything i mean it's like one of the big reveals at the end is that brad pitt knows his bible um gordo has a crucifix kunas is is the kind of you know revivalist christian there's like the end the last shot of the movie is the tank on two roads crossing in an unmistakable crucifix. Mm -hmm. And yet I couldn't find, I mean, I, you know, I spent five minutes searching around, but I couldn't find anybody talking about this online, like how religious the movie seems to be. I was able to find people talking online about whether or not Bible and War Daddy were gay for each other. <laughs> Quite accidentally. Did you put in Fury Rule 34? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I always I felt like Bible's um, beauty was uh, a result of Jesus being in him. Hmm. He did always look like that velvet painting, didn't he? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you're right, Ben. It really stood out to me the number of times that Christianity sort of popped up. Obviously, the film isn't like a secret proselytizing film, but. No, and I don't think it's unrealistic, right. but it's more, they give you more Jesus than I think a typical, you know, Hollywood movie that has a plan for international release does. Right. I mean, m way more than Saving Private Ryan. I found that little bit of Brad Pitt able to quote chapter and verse after these two guys have spent 
three years together in a tank with with this guy <laughs> with this guy you know talking about Jesus the entire time that Brad Pitt never would have revealed I mean it felt it did feel like taken right out of saving private Ryan like like we don't even know what he does turns out he's got the Bible memorized and we didn't find out until the last two minutes <laughs> that's a that was a little cornball I thought but but it plays in the moment it plays all well, it's in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The religious prescriptions of these guys are supposed to make us believe they're good people, but they are like running trains on German girls, you know, in in the next scene. So, like, who are they really? It's the hypocrisy of religion. Especially the scene where Norman goes off into the into the room to do a rape. It, it's like it's they want to do a, a nice civilized rape. The other guys from the tank are doing the really rough rape, and and we don't point the camera in the direction of that, right? Well, yeah, the rape is completely defanged and made into a romantic interlude. He reads her palm and says, "Oh, you're only going to have one great love in your life." Then they make love, and then she's immediately killed in a bomb attack, and we're left with the reverberating knowledge that the one great love in her life was him. That guy that raped her. That guy that, yeah, that sort of, it was, it was like, well, you guys can have sex or I let my whole tank crew in here. So find some romance. Yeek. But again, brutality of war, right? Yeah. Like not terribly unrealistic, I don't think, but also like it's sort of presented without comment in the same way as all the religious image imagery, which I, I, I found myself chewing on for a few hours after I watched the film. I mean, that's the thing that is so infrequently and only tangentially addressed in movies like this. And I think the, the self flattering idea that we, ha we have about world war two is that if you were a woman in one of these villages, on the side of Germany that was being invaded by the Russians, you were going to get like brutally raped over and over. But if you were on the side of Germany that was being invaded by the Americans, you were grateful for the opportunity to have sex with these handsome American doughboys who also had some chocolate bars and cigarette packs for you. Yeah. The Russians definitely weren't rolling into town with luxury items. <laughs> no. And they weren't being like, coy about whether or not um, the people in the village were going to maybe want to move back to Russia with them and start a family. <laughs> and in this, right. you know, in this particular scene, it feels entirely plausible that if, if, uh, if typist boy had been left to his own devices, he would have married that girl and made an honest woman of herself. Right. But it doesn't make him a good person. Like they are all bad people at this point in the film. This is the point where I stopped rooting for anyone. War Daddy attempts to apply class to a classless situation through, you know, his eggs dinner before his boys get to the room. But like they all in a manner in a matter of five minutes have done awful things repeatedly to some guilty people, but also some innocent people who are just caught up in the shit. And, like, that was the moment of emotional disconnect for me. Like, these are, these are shitbags. Fuck them. 
Yeah, and the, uh, but we were meant to understand that no no one innocent in this war. There's nobody that's just out there scribbling. Kilroy was here, graffitos around the village and wondering where all his friends went. Like that. This is where Fury totally contradicts the the film that it's ripping off and Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan attempted to make the case that there were good people fighting and doing bad things in war. This film never makes that presupposition. It is saying everyone's bad. I sort of wonder as, you know, as history marches on and more films that have this kind of perspective about it are made, do we I mean, like, we remember World War II as the good war and the war where America, you know, stood up and stopped fascism and, you know, racism and (laughs) you know did did this amazing and great thing yeah world war ii definitely stopped racism (laughs) well i'm just saying like the kind of like the the popular depiction of it is is that and as as more and more films are made about uh, like us being very fractionally less awful people than the nazis does that change the way like we as a society think about our role in history. Well, that's what I wonder. And that's what, that's what I wonder about this depiction, right? Because even now, I mean, there were a lot of people that were brought up on criminal charges, maybe not a lot, certainly not enough, but, but U S soldiers brought up on criminal charges during the extent of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts of the last, what now, 16 years. Uh, brought up on charges for misbehavior, right? Abu Ghraib, um, that sort of like st- here, stand naked on a bucket with a with a hood on while we uh, while we shock your balls. There were people and take pictures of it. Like there were people actually brought up on trial for that, and there are innumerable cases in these wars where where American soldiers are um, charged with unlawful killings as the as the term of phrase from platoon like the idea of there being even the possibility of an unlawful killing within war is a thing that still governs american conduct in war to a certain extent and it did then and it did during vietnam i mean the my lay uh massacre you know that's another example of an atrocity a documented atrocity but not one that went unprosecuted and so there is a story of there being rule of law within the context of war and these films particularly fury like it feels like a very modern take on what we're meant to a modern and hollywood take on what actually transpires in war made by a bunch of people who have never been to a war and who are sort of projecting a contemporary take on what that experience must have been based on having read a couple of books, uh, read a couple of books and then extrapolated like, oh, well, these guys must have been just skull funking people all the way across Germany. And I don't, you know, I'm not making a case for I'm not making a case for like a Mayberry version of war, but I'm not 100% sure that this isn't trying to communicate a revisionism that is scratching a modern itch. 
And I'm curious about what that itch is, why we want this to be, why we want to be gratified in this way. So that's why Brad Pitt has the alt-right haircut. That scene in the apartment at the dinner table was one of the scenes that Shia really shined. I mean, there's his posture at the table and when he finishes his eggs and the the look on his face, the pain on his face of being not invited to that dinner was so deep. The guy has a rep for, for being a real piece of shit, but like... <laughs> He's the one that had a film festival where he sat and watched his own films, right? Yeah. To what degree has celebrity like corrupted him as a as a human being? It has not corrupted his ability to act, and I really hope that it doesn't. Because if he is sentenced to, if he gets like a life sentence of Transformers movies, I think we all lose because he is good enough to do a great movie every two years in the way that our best actors are able to do. Well, I've got great news on IMDb. His his next project is. Uh, is one where he plays John McEnroe. <laughs> <laughs> I am That's so exciting. excited to see that. That's exciting. That sounds great. <laughs> the hair in that movie is going to be fantastic. You can't be serious. You cannot be serious. I wanted to talk to you guys about the scene where um, they sort of jump Norman into the gang by making him kill an SS. I get, he's not really an SS. He's just a German soldier who has stolen a, an American coat. And it's it's a really strange scene because Norman kind of refuses because it's it's not a, like, war-sanctioned murder. It's not, you know... Right. He's the moral center of the film at that point. Right. You're not allowed to do that. And he, he really stands up to Brad Pitt. And it turns into a scene where Brad Pitt, like forces a gun into his hand and then like wraps his own hand around Norman's and forces him to pull the trigger and it sort of has the desired effect of bringing Norman in in this in this very strange way that like he is he's brought in in this under under this strange cloud but it's the same strange cloud they're all under i found it hard to imagine him having any culpability for that murder and i mean even says as much like i like that that's not my fault i didn't do that what did you guys make of that one thing that this movie really asks you to do is believe norman's born to kill turn like he eventually grows to relish killing the nazis in in a way that everyone else in the tank does this isn't the moment that that happens but i didn't i never believed it I never believed it when he was in the tank mowing down Nazis and, and screaming fuck you at them. I don't know why that was. This was the moment where that was that whole heel turn was supposed to begin, but it was not effective to me in the way that I think it was trying to be, and I can't explain why. Like, it's it's very much a dad teaching his son how to hunt by standing behind him, holding the gun, and, and shooting the deer. Like, that was the imagery that it evoked for me. But because Norman was so empty afterwards, and Brad Pitt, you know, walked off to stare into the middle distance and contemplate what he had done in, in grooming Norman, like, it didn't work. And neither of them were satisfied with the result. Like, whatever it was hoping to kick off 
never happened until later. So I guess what I'm saying is I didn't feel what it was trying to make me feel, I think. I think that the the reason that that needed to be there, right, was that Norman had a conscience and was trying to make decision he was trying to make split second decisions in the in the fog of war based on his own Pollyannish conscience about killing and the rule of law and the rights of man. And Brad Pitt was saying, we can't afford you to have autonomous thinking. If you fuck up, we all die. This is where the cliches in this film all kind of get glommed together and you're not sure. And, and, and intentionally maybe to make us feel like within the context of war, you cannot untangle the Gordian knot of all these different conflicting ideas of what a what your human responsibility is the tight fucking busted top yeah you said that i wanted to talk about what i think makes this movie fun to watch which is the combat scenes yeah Mm. they're kind of amazing i think especially the scene where they fight the the tiger but not only that one like there's the scene where they have to roll on the anti-tank gun emplacements uh, and they've got like soldiers pinned down in a field, so they've got the four tanks rolling across, and the soldiers are are like coming in behind them, using the tanks as cover until they can take out the the big weapons. All of that stuff is is stuff that like I've wanted to see in movies, and I feel like there's just not that many movies about tank combat. Yeah, it was exciting stuff. I like the retiming of the artillery shells too, like inside the tank. The guys like turning wrenches yeah. on them before firing them. That was fun. Yeah, the the loader, you see the loader has a, a real job to do. I mean, one of the things about tank combat in World War II is that Americans used tanks very differently than Germans. The American idea of the tank was that it was an infantry vehicle it's it was there to provide cover to foot soldiers like american tanks were were not super tanks like the tigers they weren't meant to overawe the enemy and they weren't really even thought of as artillery devices so much as they were just armored cars uh that we kind of flooded the battlefield with and a certain number of them were going to get destroyed and that was part of the that was just Built into the budget. Built into the budget. Um, but infantry followed behind tanks like we saw them do in this film. And the tanks kind of busted a hole through, but but the real goal was to get soldiers in there. And the Germans met, you know, over-engineered these super tanks that were that American tank shells just kind of bounced off of. Yeah, it's amazing how many times they hit that Tiger, and it takes out three of, of the... <laughs> of the American tanks before they can put it out of commission. Yeah, and I think that was actually, that that was fairly accurate. But the problem was that a Tiger tank was really expensive to make, really hard to make, and the Germans just could not field enough of them to, I mean, they, you know, they really were that that terrifying, but there just weren't enough of them to, to counter the oh, sort of overwhelming force of, the American ability to just put put men and material on the ground. 
Yeah, you never see the guys in the in the factory going like, "Yeah, we had to stop the line again because Klaus got his hand caught in a steel press." So many war movies are like the Moby Dickification of of like allies versus Axis, and like I feel like a lesser tank movie would have made that tiger into the white whale and made it all about you know chasing down that tank that killed all our boys and finally right. scoring one on him. But that tank scene happens. Uh, like an hour into the film, almost exactly in the middle of things. Like the the climax of the film is the crucifixion of their tank in that crossroads. Yeah, with nothing to do with another tank. Yeah. Yeah. The Germans are out of tanks at that point. <laughs> they might have, they might have killed the last one. Yeah. That was a real Tiger tank, by the way. It's like on display somewhere in in the UK, I guess. There can't be many of those left. I think it's the the only one, actually, according to Wikipedia. There's like it, they captured it in North Africa, and it's like the only working Tiger tank in the world. I think the reason to restore a tank is to is to have it in movies like this. That had to be such a thrill <laughs> to have put in the work. Like it's like those uh, fighter jet squadrons that they have up in Everett, John. Like like yes. to restore them is one thing, but to actually fly them is another. That's why you do it. Well, it's, it's the interesting thing about war movies that were made in the 50s and 60s and movies that are made now. They still had enough of that material yeah. to, to make those battle scenes. Well, at least they had real real stuff, you know, and now we're just we're scavenging museums around the country, putting oil in these things <laughs> and trying to get them started or around the world. But if that mm-hmm. was a tank from North Africa... So Tiger tanks evolved during the course of the war, and by the time they were meeting a tank, you know, in in Western Germany, it would have been a very different Tiger tank than whatever they captured in North Africa. So maybe that wasn't entirely realistic. I don't know. I'm sure they still had them on the battlefield, but who knows, though? Yeah, I don't want to get too herp derp on the model of of Tiger <laughs> tank. But well, speaking of herp derp, do you want to hear my uh, favorite goof from the IMDb trivia section? Oh, yeah. Do we ever. In the one town scene, a helicon, a brass instrument related to the tuba, is next to a booby-trapped piano. Toward the end of the war, the Third Reich experienced shortages of refined metal. Thousands of brass instruments were confiscated and melted down for bullet casings. It is very unlikely that the helicon would have escaped. Ha! Ah. <laughs> they came for the helicon and I said nothing. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Then they came for my sousaphone and no one spoke up for me. <laughs> I always in movies like this and and I feel like Fury kind of kind of split the difference. The idea at this stage of the war that there was anything other than a completely inevitable Nazi defeat. Like everybody knew that by the time that by the time Patton's third army is rolling over the Rhine or the Elbe, there's no hope for the Germans. And yet they have their heels dug in and they're going to fight for every stretch of road. And I feel like the danger in a, in movies of this kind is that, to a, a, an uninitiated viewer, it seems like in every battle scene, the whole fate of the war hangs in the balance. And if the Germans seize that crossroads, 
I'm talking about generally in war movies. If the Germans seize that crossroads, maybe the Americans will be defeated and we have to hold this ground or we will lose the war. And that we see that a lot. And in this movie, they 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 go to great lengths to say many times, you know, when are they just going to give up? Like, obviously, the war is over. Why do we have to keep fighting? They're done. They're finished. Kaput. Yeah, kaput. I don't know. It's really hard to tell whether there's anything here to really care about. We're just following these unlikable people for a day and everybody dies at the end because it's easy for from a scholarly standpoint to say, well, the war was over in 1942. Everything else was just at basically administrative work like the Japanese couldn't have held their territory. We were going to roll them all the way back. It just had to get done. And from the moment that the Germans invaded Russia, the war was over. It just had to get done. And that's such a different take on it than than we had at the time, which was that, you know, that we were fighting every day for our very survival. And the way we've thought of the war for the last 70 years as being the good war rather than being the mop-up operation. What did you guys think of the bit of mercy shown to Norman the Machine Ellison in that last scene when he's uh, hiding under the tank. I thought that was the manifestation of what everyone had hoped to achieve, which was like, just stop it. Just stop. (laughs) It's over. (laughs) You don't have to keep doing this anymore. Like, the look on that kid's face when he shined the flashlight underneath the tank was like, you know, if I blow the whistle here on this kid, it's going to be four hours of the worst moment of my life. Like, <laughs> it's going to be really bad in a war that's already lost. And I thought that was like the conclusion of the feelings that were teased throughout the film. Yeah, no one was shown any mercy in the whole movie. And then Norman, Norman is schlepped away at the very end with people going like, you're a hero, son. And we're trying to figure out, like, you picture him 50 years later kneeling at the white headstone of all those dudes crying and saying, am I a good man? And his, like, unkind wife is like, sure. But, you know, he doesn't feel like a hero. You invented the Mavis Beacon typing (laughs) software. Norman, of course you're a good man. You have a legacy that will live forever. (laughs) That should have been the on-screen text. Norman went on to invent typing software. (laughs) Still used today. I'm not just going to sit here and keep quiet while you engage in a vicious act of Mavis Beacon erasure, Adam. (laughs) She invented her own typing software. I I apologize for besmirching the legacy of the great Mavis Beacon. Hi, I'm Mavis Beacon. Well, do we have anything anything else we want to say about Fury? One last thing I have on this. Jason Isaacs is in this movie. He plays Captain Wagoner, and he is the frazzled captain who is often giving the orders to our war daddy. And he uses a word here that I don't think that I have heard in another war movie that we've seen, which is murder. 
They murdered some good boys out there today. Did that affect you in the way that it affected me? Because it felt right to hear that word used in this context. It did stick out like a sore thumb to me. He's the only person in the film that is a peer to War Daddy. Even though he outranks him, they've also scraped the face of their best friend off of a tank wall. He can use the word murder. Kicking ass and scraping face. (laughs) And I'm all out of face. (laughs) Adam, did you have a guy? I didn't think watching this movie I would have a guy after seeing what a tank full of assholes these guys were. Uh, But my guy appeared in the most unlikely of places. He was wearing a Nazi uniform. He was the guy shining the flashlight under the tank who did not want to do his job in a hopeless moment in the war. He just wanted it to be over. I feel like I got that guy maybe more than I got anyone else in the film and their decisions throughout. Like That seemed very clear to me what his deal was. And so, uh, never thought I would align myself with the Axis, but Flashlight Guy's my guy. That's a good guy, Adam. <laughs> Who's your guy, Ben? Um, my guy was Gordo, the Michael Pena character. I guess each character in the tank gets their own kind of weird quirk, but he seemed to be more removed from the others. And uh, is the only one that expressed any remorse when they come and trash the fancy, fancy party that Brad Pitt and Norman the Machine are having. So he, he earned my guy status when he said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm being an asshole. I'm drunk. Yeah, there was some humanity there to him. Yeah, he almost seemed like he was going to cry, didn't he? Yeah. He's wearing a top hat. Looking real good. <laughs> he dressed for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Out of those two things, his uh, cutting a bit of a dash by putting that top hat on and also (laughs) being remorseful about his poor behavior, uh, both things I identified strongly with. Good guy. John? I mean, obviously, uh, Labeef was my favorite actor, but my guy was the captain. The captain who, like, inexplicably but also perfectly had a fur collar a giant fur collar on like he was wearing the pelt of a blue fox (laughs) he felt like a roman general that seemed like a very roman costume that he had on super great and he's dirty and he reappears he's not just a he's not just an officer that we see for one gratifying scene sort of like um Sam from Cheers in Saving Private Ryan, who sort of waltzes on and then waltzes off. He is the character that I imagine I would be in a war like that. I was like, you know, that's me. And that's who I wish I were. Not just in that film, but in the way I conduct myself during the day. Like when I walk into a When I walk into a conference room here in Seattle and we're talking about Seafair, I want to be perceived as having a dirty fur on. (laughs) Whether or not I am wearing that fur or not. And that's how you got your nickname for the episode, John. Dirty Fur. (laughs) That's your war name. (laughs) Dirty Fur. 
Great war That's name, right. John. <laughs> uh, we have 55 movies here on our list of films we haven't watched yet. That's 55 movies left in the world. Uh, John, do you want to pick a random number? 55, eh? Yeah. Uh, let's shoot for right in the middle. Let's call it 27. 27 is An Enemy at the Gates, another World War II movie from 2001, directed by Jean-Jacques Anode. But this this one happening on the on the eastern front, not on the western front. Finally, we see a movie from the Russian side. Yeah. Do you uh, have any any particular memory of why you added this to the list, John? Uh, the first time I saw this film, it was on an airplane where I refused to pay the money for headphones. <laughs> so uh, so I sat in my chair, and it's a fairly brutal movie to watch on an airplane, but I think it was an international overnight flight, and the assumption was there were no children on it. Mm. But then later on, I watched Enemy of the Gates again with sound, and somehow it did not... It did not seem as corny as it seemed without sound. And I really got, I really engaged in it in a different way, right? Like Battle of Stalingrad is terrible, terrible, terrible. Although this movie did not capture it really at all. It did, it was classic sniper duel movie. Yeah. And I love a sniper duel. I uh, very vividly remember my middle school history teacher telling us about how the Germans were sent into battle with the instruction to grab the gun of the guy in front of you when he gets killed. And this movie actually has a depiction of that, if I remember correctly. I really miss Ed Harris. I'm excited to see him in a movie again. Like, this uh, late 90s, early 2000s was Ed Harris time. Was it not gratifying to see him in a Westerworld TV show? I liked seeing him in that show, and I like that show. Ben has very strong feelings about it, though. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a hit podcast about it. We only made the one episode, though. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we should thank Rob Schulte, our talented producer-editor. To the victors, go the spoiler alerts. I've been Ben Harrison. And I'm Harry Reasoner. <laughs> I'm Leslie Stahl. <laughs> Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. Produced by Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter, at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.